because she's not amazing and we're caring, because of, but because of my relationship, I guess you would call it a relationship to her. Just as last week, Saint is one of Chris's heroes, as evidenced by the fact that he preached for like, you know, three hours. <laughs> I promise I will not preach for three hours. <laughs> Way shorter. <laughs> this week, Saint is one of my absolute I love this woman because she lives and loves in a way that lays some people uncomfortable. And to be honest, she makes me just a little bit uncomfortable, too. Some of the things that we're going to deal with this morning are uncomfortable as well. But before we dive into learning about this courageous and brave woman and the way that she lived her one and only life, I'd like to start by reading an excerpt from one of my most favorite works of fiction. The Return of the King by J.R.R. Tolkien. So please settle back, close your eyes if you want, and come on a little journey with me to the fantasy world of Middle Earth. The light was still gray as they rose, for the sun had not yet climbed over the black ridges of the haunted mountains before them. A dread fell on them, even as they passed between the lines of ancient stones, and so came to the dim hole. There, under the gloom of the black trees that not even Legolas could long endure, they found a hollow place, opening at the mountain roots, and right in their path, to the single mighty stone of the finger of doom. My blood runs chill, said Gimli, but the others were silent, and his voice fell dead on the dank fur needles at his feet. The horses would not pass. Would not pass the threatening stone until the riders dismounted and led them about. And so they came at last deep into the glen, and there stood a sheer wall of rock. And in the wall, the dark door gaped before them like a mouth of night. Signs and figures were carved above its, above its wide arch, too dim to read. And fear flowed from it like a gray vapor. The company halted, and there was not a heart among them that did not quail, unless with the heart of Legolas of the elves, for whom the ghosts of men have no terror. This is an evil door, said Halvarez, and my death lies beyond it. I will dare to pass it nonetheless, but no horse will enter. But we must go in, and therefore the horses go too, said Aragorn. For if ever we come through this darkness, many leagues lie beyond, and every hour that is lost, there will bring the triumph of Sauron nearer. Follow me, then Aragorn led the way, and such was the strength of his will in that hour, that the Dunedain and their horses followed him. And indeed, the love that the horses of the rangers bore for their riders was so great that they were willing to face even the terror of the door. <laughs> if their master's hearts were steady as they walked beside them. But Arad, the horse of Rohan, refused the way. And he stood, sweating and trembling in a fear that was grievous to see. Then Legolas laid his hands on his eyes and sang some words that were soft in the gloom until he suffered himself to be led. And Legolas passed in. And there stood dimly the door, left all alone. His knees shook as he was wroth with himself. Here's a thing unheard of, he said. An elf will go underground and a dwarf where it dare not. With that he plunged in. But it seemed to him that he dragged his feet like lead over the threshold. And at once the blindness came upon him, 
even upon Gimli, Gloin's son, who had walked unafraid in many deep places of the world. Aragorn had brought torches from Dunharrow, and now he went ahead bearing one aloft, and Eladan with another went to the rear, and Gimli, stumbling behind, strove to overtake him. He could see nothing but the dim glare of the torches. But if the company halted, there seemed... I told you guys. <laughs> but if the company halted, there seemed an endless whisper of voices all about him, a murmur of words in no tongue that he had ever heard before. Nothing assailed the company, nor withstood their passage. And yet steadily fear grew on the dwarf as he went on. Most of all, because he knew not there could be no turning back. All the paths behind were thronged by an unseen host that followed in the dark. So time unreckoned passed until Gimli saw a sight that he would ever afterwards loathe to recall. The road was wide as far as he could judge, but now the company came suddenly into a great empty space, and there was no longer any walls around upon either side. The dread was so heavy on him that he could hardly Away to the left, something glittered in the gloom as Aragorn's torch drew near. And Aragorn halted and went to look what it might be. But he feel no fear, muttered the dwarf. In any other cave, Gimli, Gloin's son, would have been first to run to the gleam of gold. But not here. Let it lie. Nonetheless, he drew near and saw Aragorn kneeling, while Eladan held aloft both torches. Before him were the bones of a mighty man. He had been clad in mail, and still his harness lay there whole. For the cavern's air was as dry as dust, and his hauberk was gilded. His belt was of gold and garnet, and rich with gold was the helm upon his bony head, face downward on the floor. He had fallen near the far wall of the cave, as now could be seen, and before him stood a stony door closed fast. His finger bones were still clawing at the crack. A notched and broken sword lay by him, as if he had hewn at the rock in his last despair. Aragorn did not touch him, but after gazing silently for a while, he rose and sighed. Hither shall the flowers of Symbolmine come never unto world's end, he murmured. Nine mounds and seven there are now green with grass, and through all the long years he was lain at the door shall ever know. For that is not my errand, he cried, turning back and speaking to the whispering darkness behind. Keep your hordes and your secrets hidden in the accursed woods. Speed only, we ask. Let us pass, and then come. I summon you to the stone of Eric. There was no answer, unless it were an utter silence more dreadful than the whispers before. And then a chill blast came in when the torches flickered and went out and could not be rekindled. But the time that followed, one hour or many, dimly remembered little. The others pressed on, but he was ever hindmost, pursued by a groping horror that, had, that seemed always just about to seize him. And a rumor came after him like a shadow sound of many feet. He stumbled on until he was crawling like a beast on the ground and felt that he could endure no more. He must either find an ending and escape, 
or run back in madness to meet the following deer. Suddenly, he heard the tinkle of water, a sound hard and clear as a stone falling into a dream of dark shadow. Light grew and low. The company passed through another gateway, high-arched and broad, and a rill rang out beside them. And going beyond, deeply down, was a road of sheer cliff, knife edge against the sky far above. So deep and narrow was that chasm that the sky was dark, and in its small stars glinted. Yet as dimly after learned, it was still two hours ere sunset on the day on which they had left set out from Dunharrow. Though for all that he could then tell, it might have been twilight in some later year, or in some other world. The company now mounted again and dimly returned to Lagos. They rode in file, and evening came on, and the deep blue left, and still fear pursued them. Legolas, turning to speak to Gimli, looked back, and the dwarf saw before his face the glitter in the elf's bright eyes. Behind them rode Elidan, last of the company, but not the last of those that took the downward road. The dead are following, said Legolas, as she sees shapes of men and of horses, and pale banners like shreds of clouds and spears like winter thickets on a misty night. The dead are following. Yes, the dead ride behind. They have been summoned, said Eleanor. I think of this passage every single year as we do our saints series, especially the line about the dead riding behind. And if you know Tolkien's story, you know that the army of the dead saves the day, which, I, which I've always taken as a metaphor that the knowledge of the past and what we learn from history is what saves our present. But this year, this passage is much more powerful because of the darkness that the writers endured to gain the power of the cloud of witnesses that rose behind them. Because to read and talk about this thing and to try and communicate the impact that she has had on my life is akin for me to Gimli's terror under the haunted mountain. In January of this year, I was sick. I was so sick, in fact, that we canceled church on the first Sunday of the year with virtually no notice. I had run myself ragged during the holidays, trying to make sure that everyone else had what they needed and wanted and had completely neglected to take care of myself. Things came to a horrible head, and among other things, my heart was racing uncontrollably. My muscles were on the verge of constant cramping, and I couldn't get my body to turn off and sleep. My skin felt as though it was on fire, and pieces of it were just peeling off for no reason. It was scary. This wasn't the first time in my life that this type of thing had happened, but it was the most severe. Each time it happens to my body, it's incredibly scary to feel as though I have no control over my body. Through the years, I've sought help from various doctors, only to be brushed aside and told that I'm just struggling with anxiety. But in January, I decided to try again with yet another doctor. This doctor seemed to listen more attentively than previous doctors, and she changed some things and tried some new things, and it started to help. At the same time, Chris and I were digging into some other aspects of our life and our family, trying to gain some balance and rest for me. In the midst of this season, I bumped into Ezekiel 37 in my Read Through the Bible program, and I just got stuck. I kept reading and rereading the passage like it was written to me for this moment. This passage reads like this. The Lord took hold of me 
And I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. He led me all around among the bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. Then he asked me, Son of man, can these bones become living people again? Oh, sovereign Lord, I replied, you alone know the answer to that. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm going to put breath into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I spoke this message just as he told me. Suddenly as I spoke, there was a rattling noise all across the valley. The bones of each body came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons. And as I watched, muscles and flesh formed over the bones. Then skin formed to cover their bodies, but still they had no breath in them. And then he said to me, Speak a prophetic message to the winds, son of man. Speak a prophetic message and say, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath from the four winds, breathe into these dead bodies so they may live again. So I spoke the message as he commanded me, and breath came into their bodies. They all came to life and stood up on their feet, a great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, We have become old, dry bones. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore, prophesy to them and say, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, O my people. I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. When this happens, O my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live again and return home to your own then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done what I said. Yes, the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. If I'm honest, I have made fun of this passage for years, joking that surely Ezekiel was doing some kind of drugs. I mean, he had the weirdest prophecies, like valleys of dry bones and wheels within wheels, all kinds of weird stuff. But this year, as I read this strange prophecy, I knew that this part of the story was important, and I was supposed to learn something. I was supposed to find myself in this part of the story of God. So I did what anyone would do when confronted with a confusing passage that you know God is speaking to you. So I started nagging Chris to preach on it. Honestly, though, I felt like Gimli the Dwarf from The Lord of the Rings. I was walking terrified, yet inquisitive, into a cave full of bones. And for the first time in my life, Ezekiel's words felt real to me, alive. And it's spooky to find yourself surrounded by death that God is asking you to bring to life. But it's also full of hope. I tell you all that story, my crash in January and the terror of God calling me to bring some dead things in my life back to life. Because that moment, that ugly, painful part of my story had been coming for many years. And I didn't feel up to the task at all. And that feeling always drives me back to this morning's thing. 
I found Kara Tippett because she was dying. In 2014, Brittany Maynard had become the face of assisted suicide. She had terminal cancer and her family had moved to Oregon to take advantage of a new law allowing patients to take their own lives with a doctor-provided prescription. And her story had become ever so high profile. I was kind of following along her story because some of my family history was similar situations. One day, while skimming the headlines about Brittany Maynard's story, I stumbled upon an open letter that Kara Tippett had penned to a fellow terminal cancer patient. I was immediately drawn into Kara's story when I read these beautiful words from the letter that she wrote to Brittany. Brittany, when we trust Jesus to be the carrier, protector, redeemer of our hearts, death is no longer dying. My heart longs for you to know this truth, this love, this forever thing. You have been told a lie, a horrible lie that your dying will not be beautiful, that the suffering will be too great. Kara wrote these words from her own terminal diagnosis. I was gripped by this letter from one cancer patient to another, pleading for her, but really to all of us, to rest in the story that God was writing and to find a way to embrace that story and find the joy and the love that could be found there. This faith struck a deep chord within me because when I was 14, my papa, the man that I loved most in the world, chose to end his life because he was facing death by cancer. At the time, my parents chose to shield my sisters and I from the choice that he had made. But years later, when they told all of us that Zoe was experiencing his death all over we had to wrestle with all the questions, the missed opportunities, to tell him again how very loved that he was. The chance to curl up next to him and smile. To smell the Folgers coffee that emanated from him as he told us stories or played games with me and my sisters. So while sitting in front of my computer screen, maybe the most unspiritual and unromantic of places in the world. This beautiful letter was speaking of grace and joy and love that could be found even in dying, and it undid me. I immediately searched and found the blog that Kara authored. I subscribed to it, and I went back, and I read every past blog post, and I even bought a little book that she had written called Big Love. In the writing of this everyday mom who had so recently been an ordinary woman simply navigating life with a husband and four kids and a new church plant, I found a life that was being lived by a woman who was dying. She spoke of finding ways to love our families big, curling up to read stories for the thousandth time with a crazy toddler because she understood what, what a privilege it was. She wrote about rubbing the knots out of tired, sore muscles. She spoke of pursuing the hearts of her husband and her children while she had the time, asking them questions to draw them out rather than push them away as she had once done when she was ruled by the hurry and frustration that comes from being busy. She spoke of finding joy in the simple tasks of folding laundry or making meals. Her words made art out of watching those we love gather around our table to feast on not only the food we have prepared, but the presence of those seated with us. 
Once I was caught up on all of her back posts, I followed along day by day as she found ways to seize every single moment with those that she loved. I followed his cancer to the deeper hole and found more and more ways to invade her body. And I learned what it meant when a day would go by with no posts, and I would pray. I worked with each new diagnosis with this woman that I didn't even know, and I prayed with her for her family and for more time. Chris, on more than one occasion, asked me why in the world I was following this woman's blog post so closely. Because all he could see was my tears and anguish on behalf of half of this beautiful soul. And he wondered why I kept putting myself through that. And even more vehemently, he wondered why in the world I was sending these posts to him. Because if you know Chris, you know he's a crybaby. And he really doesn't like crying when he's at work in front of everyone else. But while following Kara's life and her death, I, in her words, was finding the courage to live and ask God to give me grace for each moment. She spoke honestly of the pain of a story that she didn't want or even ask for, and the beauty of getting to witness God show up to her and her family, mostly in the form of their community. Kara found Jesus as a teenager, and she watched as Jesus and his forgiveness slowly changed her life and turned her, turned her toward her lifelong pursuit and grace. She married her husband, Jason, and they began building a family and life together that eventually included four children and a passion for gathering people, creating community, and fostering connections. Kara was a connector. Her closest friends called her a people gatherer. No matter what she was doing, she brought people together and she simply made community happen. In fact, Kara had a popular mommy blog that brought moms together in a supportive and life-giving community online. And it was this blog that would later become her incredibly popular blog called Monday for Faithfulness. In 2012, Jason and Kara were asked by their church leadership to leave their North Carolina home and move to Colorado Springs, Colorado, to plant a church. They did so, and six months later, Kara would discover a lump during a self-breast exam, launching them into their journey with cancer. As she was already a blogger, Kara purposed to share, or overshare, as she sometimes said, what this new hard meant, and how even it could be redeemed by God's grace. Kara had never dreamed that her desire to live and die well would lead to three more books, many speaking engagements, and a gigantic worldwide community of support and love over the course of her four-year battle. All she did was honestly and beautifully share her journey, and she took along anyone who cared to read as she sat through chemo, as she took stronger and stronger drugs, as she tried treatments, both conventional and natural, and more importantly, as she gave her readers a glimpse into her relationship with her family her friends, and most importantly, her relationship with God. Sarah shared, as she wrote letters for her children, for them to open in important moments in their lives, because she knew she wouldn't be there. She spoke of the heartache of encouraging Jason to find love and remarry after she was gone, even while she was fighting to remain present with him in her dying. 
She wrote about how she poured herself into the woman in their church because she knew that they would be the female figures in her children's growing up. She even bought them necklaces to identify them to her children as people who were safe for them to talk to. Her love, her pain, and her faith were on display. And it was inspiring to walk, if only in a blog, with someone who was fighting for each moment in ways that we far too often take for granted. You see, by the time Kara penned her letter to Brittany, she knew that her time on earth would be measured in days or months and not years anymore. And yet she still knew that while she was here, she had a job to do. She could still point others to the beautiful love and grace present in each moment. Because of the love and grace that Jesus has for us, and she chose to spend every day doing that. She said over and over again that she didn't have to understand the why of this story of her life. Because underneath it all, she knew that God was truly good. She chose to reach out in kindness when no one would have faulted her if she had grown angry and bitter at the story that God was writing with her life now. And it was beautiful to witness. And I genuinely feel honored to have gotten to follow Kara for as long as I did. On March 22nd, 2015, Kara went to be with Jesus. Her battle with cancer was over. The love that she left behind continues today. And that was always her hope. That in her story, others would find Jesus and his love and his grace. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this story of a life that was lived well by a woman who knew that death was coming? I guess my hope is that we would each try to live in some way like Kara spent her last four years. Yet I know that this is much harder than we would all prefer. I said earlier that what happened in January of this year had been years in the making, probably about 40 years. I have pushed aside so much of who I am in order to survive in a world that is sometimes hard and painful. But here before me was this woman who was dying, too. And she was actually embracing the hard and the painful, and she was turning it into something beautiful. And I want that. I truly don't remember a day when I didn't love Jesus. I was raised in a Christian home, and Jesus is a part of my story for as far back as I can remember. I had experienced the beauty and the wonder of his grace for me. But to truly live and embrace life, that I had never done. I felt and sometimes still feel like I'm running from one thing to the next, desperately wanting to soak it all in, but often too overwhelmed with the mundane day-to-day to see the love, the grace, and the joy that are all around me. I am that valley full of bones, dry, brittle, and lifeless. And yet, just as God called Ezekiel to speak to that valley of bones, God is calling me, and maybe you, to look at the dry, brittle bones that lay around us 
most painful, ugly parts of our stories. The parts we want to hide from, or run from, or pretend they're not even there. When I stop for just a second and I look at those bones, I can hear his gentle voice over and over. Not only speaking life, but asking me to speak life. Just like the excerpt I read from earlier, I often find myself only seeing the dead, the bones left from the past. And I have to imagine and hope that there are also glimpses and glimmers of the gold and the gems, the grace and the love that I know are also hidden in there in the piles of things I'd like to think that I've left behind. So this year, as I found myself in the Valley of Dry Bones with Ezekiel, with a renewed hope to see those bones become a living army, this year, as we all look together at this great cloud of witnesses that surround us in our faith series, I'm drawn back to Paul's words to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. As I've read and reread and reread Ezekiel, and I'm soaked in this ancient story that is now part of my story, I'm drawn back again to Kara. For the first time, I realized what drew me to Kara several years ago. And this is what I want to leave with all of us. Kara knew Jesus. He wasn't a philosophy or a cause or a moral example. He was her friend. She knew that the God of the Bible, the God who created the heavens and the earth, and the man and woman with such loving care and precision, the God who parted the Red Sea and caused the sun to stand still. The God who performed crazy miracles and rescued Jonah and David and Peter and John and Paul. He's the same God who looked with compassion and love on the woman caught in adultery. And he's the same God that she, Kara, served each and every day. And that God that she knew showed up each and every day in ways big and small. And she looked at her story that he was writing with her life and the painful bones that were literally dying. And she found life. She got to watch as God brought life, real life, in the midst of pain and dying. And God used that life to draw her, her love, and so many others to the heart of that same Jesus that she loved. Kara, like Paul, loved to invite others to come along with her. Not only did choose to live and love big, but the very beat of her heart was to invite others to join her in knowing this God who loves so big. This God who gives you and I the gift of every single moment of every single day. He's the same God of each and every person in the cloud of witnesses. That army that follows behind and before and that they love. Chris has spent the last several weeks talking to us about some really extraordinary people who lived and died in amazing times. Some were cast in stormy national times. Some chose to step into a storm. And now this dear woman who had a personal storm dropped in her lap. What if God is asking to write a story with each of our lives that speaks just as loudly as that story of Daniel? or Dottie Okavo, or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, or Karen Tippett? What if God is calling each of us to walk through our pile of bones 
and watch as he brings them to life? What if honestly looking for God to show up in our hearts and not just running from it is where we get to see the miracle of sinew and muscle and flesh reappearing and breath being breathed into to cover the death of our lives? What if we're supposed to be the army that's following Aragorn out of the mountain to save all of Middle Earth? What if God is calling each of us to join this cloud of witnesses that surround those who come after us? What if your story is supposed to inspire others the way that Kara's story inspired me? What if we each were to walk out of this place today committed to living and loving those that he places in front of us in ways big and small, and in doing so, we became someone else's friend? What if each of us began to invite others to come along with us in our story that might just become their story? And all of it helping to tell this ultimate story of God that we call time. I can tell you now that if you're sitting in this room, if you're still breathing, then God is calling you to that very thing. So I ask each of us, will we live and love big? Will we invite others to join us? Will we invite God to write stories with our lives that continue to grow his ragged, bone-filled, grace-hunting, joy-finding cloud 